Father, that is our prayer this morning, that your word would impact our lives and that the impact would be great because we have an open heart towards your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for this book that we hold, ancient as it is, um, absolutely true, absolutely relevant, absolutely needed for today. Thank you for this historical count that we've been studying for so many months now of, of Matthew recording for us the very words of our Lord Jesus. And as we dig in and study today, would you please just open our eyes to truth and just uh, allow the Word of God to impact us once again. We do want to shine as bright lights in this dark world, and we do want to live for Jesus. So use this time well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I wonder if you can identify a time in your past where something happened or a decision was made. It was important. It was impacting. But you can actually recognize that it wasn't until much later in time, maybe even years later, that you recognize that that moment or that event really impacted your life much later. Let me illustrate what I mean. I um, ran into a blog account where people were were giving testimony of these moments in their life that had an, a long-lasting or life-impacting impact upon them. One guy wrote, um, Wayne Arnold, I don't know who Wayne is, probably a fourth grader who just got his trumpet. Wayne Arnold, let me hold the trumpet he had just got from school. I was in kindergarten, and at that moment, I knew that I would have to play the trumpet. And 32 years later, I still play. That's what I mean. Something that happened way back there, and you didn't realize its full impact until later. One guy wrote that when he was 10, he got a job at a, as a caddy at the local golf club, and he fell in love with the game, and he said, and I hope to die playing this game of golf. Another guy wrote with a little more negative uh, twist to it that in second grade, a couple girls were teasing me, he said, and I walked away without saying anything in return, like you're supposed to. And after recess, they lied to the teacher saying that I threw ice at them, and she would hear none of my story. Even my parents didn't believe me. And the teacher made me write an apology to the girls along with, quote, I will not throw ice. It is hard as rocks and could hurt people, close quote, 100 times. He says, I'm small and bitter to this day. <laughs> One guy said when he was four, he lost two of his fingers in a lawnmower. Reach your own conclusions about that. It impacted his life tremendously. Another guy said, my father died when I was five. I remember at age 12 walking forward at a missions conference and dedicating my life to Christ. And then at age 19, while commercial salmon fishing up on the Yukon in Alaska, a guy offered me a very real opportunity to become an employee with a major oil company and work up on the Arctic Slope. And the first thought that came to my mind was, I can't do that. And my mind flashed to being 12 years old, walking forward and telling the Lord I would serve him full time. I can't. I can't. I, I can't. A decision, a moment, an occurrence, and later on it has great impact. As you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please, I want us to read our text today. 
You might want to find your notes as well and follow along. I think you'll find it helpful as always. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to pick up where we've been in this this hard saying passage of Christ and put it back in context. We're going to pick up for our text today, beginning with verse 26 of Matthew 16. I found out in both of the earlier services that I can't get to where I was planning to be today. Um, That is this interesting section that we find in the first half of chapter 17 called the Transfiguration. We're going to go ahead and read it today, but it will be next week that we will um, allow that to impact us. Let's begin for context in Matthew 16, verse 24. We'll read the rest of chapter 16 and then 17, 1 through 13, and it will begin to prepare us uh, for what God has for us even today and next week. And then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. And truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents or tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, and he said, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Now tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Is that, like, bizarre? That is just a weird passage of Scripture. Oh, I already told you I found out I can't get to it this morning and stay within our time constraints. Um, Plan on being here next week. It is really an interesting passage of Scripture. And you're going to find that that transfiguration proves out to be a moment in the lives of the disciples that when it happened, I think they were confused. But later on, it highly impacts their life as part of their great conviction that Jesus Christ was indeed who he said he was. 
We want to finish out chapter 16 and prepare ourselves to move into chapter 17, however. And if you're following along with your notes, I want you to notice that in 16, verses 26 and 27, we encounter a convicting statement. It's a very convicting moment here that is talked about. Let's reread verse 26. Jesus is talking here, and this is that passage where he's calling people to follow him, both in salvation and in daily surrender, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to identify with the death of Christ, to not be ashamed of Christ. And then he says this question. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Right? The answer is, it won't profit you anything. He goes on and he asks another question. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And and the rhetorical question is answered by, I wouldn't give anything for my soul. The point is is to emphasize and drive home the reality that that you don't want to trade in in this life what's going to cost you all of eternity. You want to give away this life so that you gain eternity. And And in transition then, he says, as a motivational statement, look at verse 27, the next word is for. Okay, so... He's come off that verse 25, the paradoxical statement that he made, for whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life will save it, and what's it going to profit you if you lose everything for this life? What are are you thinking here? For, because, in reality, this is what's going to happen, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, that sentence, that statement is talking about the return of the Lord and the return of the Lord is being held up here by our Lord and His teaching as a motivational factor to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow Christ and to trade everything in this world for the next world. One of the things that should motivate us is that He is going to come back with His angels. Don't let Him catch you not living this way. And I thought it would be good for us to just remind ourselves that this is a very convicting statement. That the, that the eminent return, eminent means that it could happen at any time. The fact that our Lord went away. And the disciples watched in Acts chapter 1 and looked up into heaven. And were promised that He would return. And the scriptures are filled with the teaching that our Lord will return one day. And, and that that is a very convicting Reality in the life of the believer, and it is to motivate us to stay by the stuff, to not give up in the pursuit of Christ and following his call and the weariness of taking up our cross and following him. We don't fit into this world, do we? And the flesh screams out, and it's, and it's difficult to deny the flesh. And that call is to all Christians. Listen, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you don't deny your flesh, right? You cannot live a life victorious over sin if you do not deny yourself. You cannot effectively live for Christ if you don't identify with his cross and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And, and Jesus is going on in his teaching and he's just he's saying, and, and keep going because the Son of Man is going to come back with his angels. You can do this. Be found faithful. It's a very convicting statement. I want us to reinforce this for just a minute. And uh, let me just give you three thoughts on the return of Christ and how it impacts our lives here. Letter A in our notes in turning to 1 John chapter 
2, verses 28 through 3, 3. Some of you will recognize these verses. Others, they might be brand new. And if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to mark these verses. They're very convicting. Letter A is the return of Christ convicts. It convicts. And that's in keeping with uh, the intent of the teaching of Christ coming off of the, the discipleship passage and calling people to follow Him. Keep following because He will come back. You've got to remember, too, that our Lord is setting up His disciples to live successfully after He leaves them. And they are also still trying to figure out, and they do not have it yet, but processing the reality that the kingdom that they've been looking for isn't going to happen right away. And so they need to be faithful, and He will come back. John wrote about this in the first epistle of John. This is way back in your Bible by the book of Revelation at the end. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, verse 28 of chapter 2. And it says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And look how the ESV translates this. Very good. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Listen, John is writing to believers so you, want to be, you don't want to be embarrassed at his coming. Living for this world and not for the next. Being embarrassed of the cross. When he comes back, do not be living in such a way. Only live in such a way that you will have confidence at his coming and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. People who are righteous live righteous lives. We're going to see that in our next point as well. Let's read the next three verses of chapter 3. See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears at His coming... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, or everyone who has this hope in him, what's the next word? Does what? Purifies himself. He purifies himself as he is pure. We're back in Matthew chapter 16, but the idea there is that the, the fact that the Lord is going to return in power and authority with his angels and with judgment should motivate us with a great conviction to live for Christ on a day-to-day basis. Should have a purifying effect. I had a, I've, talked to you, I've told you about my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Zettergren. I've been thinking about stuff like that lately. And Mr. Zettergren was a World War II sergeant. And he was kind of an old man to me in uh, fifth grade about, I don't know what year that was. Doesn't matter. And uh, 1970 maybe. Um, and and he, uh, he's the guy that used to smoke cigars in our classroom. Our whole classroom would be filled with wonderful blue cigar smoke. Man, would they croak today in the public school? And we could smell Mr. Zettergren's class all the way down the hall, and he'd be in there smoking in the morning when we'd come in these big old cigars. The air would be all cloudy. He ruled that classroom with a, with a wooden stick that he would smash down on your desk, and if your hands were in the way, so be it. And I mean, you didn't goof around when Mr. Zettergren was around. 
And every once in a while, he left, and he left the classroom, and he'd be gone for a little bit. I think I know now that he was down in the teacher's lounge smoking a cigar, but he'd tell us he had to go down to the office, and, and, and there were some rascalian boys. He would tell us, you do your desk work, stay in your seats, and they would get up and sometimes have an eraser war or throw paper or be carrying on, moving around the classroom. But somebody would be at the doorway listening for Mr. Zettigren's steps coming down the hall. And all of a sudden, the classroom would be somewhat chaotic. All of a sudden, someone would say, here he comes. Here he comes. And I'm telling you, man, they straightened up in a hurry. Everybody got to their seat. Everybody acted normal. Everybody got their desk work going as Mr. Zedigren's steps got closer to the door. That's what John is talking about. It's what Jesus is talking about. He's coming, and it should bring a conviction, and we need to be ready. But not only should it convict us, but the coming of the Lord comforts us. The coming of the Lord brings comfort. Do you know that? You don't have to necessarily turn there. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me just recount it for you. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, where, where the Thessalonian believers have been, they've become confused because people have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and then in anticipation of the coming of the Lord, as the Apostle Paul has taught them that he's going to come back, In the meantime, people died and they had funerals in their church and they buried believers in the Lord Christ. And now they've sent word to Paul with some questions for him to answer and say, look, what's going on? People have have died and they're in Christ and we're waiting for his return. What's the deal? And the Apostle Paul says um, that you need to to not be afraid. Don't worry here, he says. He said... um, and this is that great passage that, that talks about the fact that in a moment in a, and um, the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In that passage, do you remember that he says, and do not sorrow as those who have no hope. Why? Because there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and if we aren't dead yet and we're alive, they will be caught up together first with us in the air. We'll meet the Lord in the air. And do you remember how he ends that passage where he talks about this great snatching away of God's people? We call it the rapture. The idea that believers in Christ will meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will come out of their graves and meet the Lord in the air. And then he ends the passage where he's already said, do not sorrow or grieve as those who have no hope. And then he ends the passage with these words, Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. What's the comfort? The comfort is the fact that our Lord is coming and there's going to be a resurrection and that that just calms us down. And so when we stand by the grave of our loved one and, and we miss them and grieve over their loss, we don't grieve like those who have no hope because we have a hope that our Lord will return and our loved one will rise again and we're going to meet them in the air. We will be together for all of eternity. And that brings comfort to the believer. Comfort driven by the return of Christ. The third thing that the return of Christ does is it calms us. It calms us. This is that classic passage in John's Gospel, chapter 14, where Jesus begins by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Remember that? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He goes on to say in the King James, In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. 
Many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and I am, he says, I'm going. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. And I will receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. How did that passage start in John 14, 1? Disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. It has a calming effect, the return of Christ does. The fact that we have a place prepared for us. That verse, John 14, 6, then, tells us how to get there, doesn't it? Do you remember that? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. Well, we're back in Matthew chapter 16, and our eyes are on verses 26 and 27. And we have in verse 27, as a, as a motivating factor, this convicting, convicting statement about the return of Christ. He will return. That convicts us. It also comforts and calms us. But I want you, before we move away out of this passage, look at verse 27 and how he ended that verse. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Well, the second thing we see is this confusing judgment. What kind of judgment is this? I'm kind of confused by this. Because... If salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and it is, how is it then that he's teaching here that we would be judged by our works? It does seem confusing, right? And we need to be careful to, to, to be crystal clear here. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 would be a key verse on that, right? For by grace we are saved through faith. Not of works. Nothing we can do, lest someone should boast or be cocky or talk about, I'm good enough to get to heaven on my own. No, you're not. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. So what's the deal? We, we preach strongly here that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it is true, isn't it? And that, that all takes place at the cross where Jesus died in our place for our sin. And there we go to the cross and we admit our sinfulness. And we lay down our unrighteousness and Christ takes it upon himself. And he puts credit in our bankrupt sin account, a credit of righteousness that is not our own. He gives us his righteousness. And we give him our trash of sin and he pays the price in the presence of a holy God. And all of that is a freebie. All of that, you cannot, you cannot work to make that happen. All you do is believe and accept and trust. That's it. And that's your salvation. So what's the deal here? How is it that when Christ and His angels come back in glory, and that's supposed to motivate me and convict me to keep on going, denying myself, taking up my cross, keep me going. But then He threw in that, that phrase that bothers me a great deal. He will repay each person according to what he has done. So somebody's keeping a list, whether they're naughty or nice. What's the deal? I think it's very important for us to understand what he's teaching here. The answer is somewhat simple and logical. On the other hand, it is somewhat complex in that it is threaded throughout our New Testament. I want you to know that this is not a new concept in Christ's teaching. This is not a new concept in Christ's teaching. I want you to turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 7, okay? Go to Matthew chapter 7, 
and take a look and be reminded from the Sermon on the Mount, and we have revisited this a couple of times since we've been here, of the the principle of the fruit-bearing tree. That the fruit always exposes the kind of tree. All right? There's a principle here. Now, I understand that in the context, our Lord is speaking specifically about false prophets. And that they will show their true colors. But notice what it says in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So on the outside, they don't look like what they are on the inside. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Let's say that again. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. There's the kick line there, verse 20. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Before we talk a little bit more about expanding this, let me show you how our Lord also taught this in other places. It's not in your notes, but you could jot down John chapter 5, and I would invite you to turn to John's gospel and chapter 5 with me. And I want you to see at the end of John chapter 5 that our Lord says a very similar thing, that our works will be used to judge us. Now look at this. This is very interesting. John 5, look at verses 28 and 29. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. He's talking about, in this passage, how all authority has been given to the Son to judge the earth. So Christ is going to be the ultimate judge. Okay, And we know from other passages that every knee will bow before Jesus. And every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. But look at what he says in this teaching. We're jumping into verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5. And he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, dead people, will hear his voice. Okay, dead people can hear. Isn't that kind of woo? The dead will hear his voice. I uh, say this that's a voice. That's a voice. The master of the universe speaks and dead people disintegrated in the ground all of a sudden can hear. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What's he talking about? That kind of reminds me of this statement back in Matthew 16. He will repay each person according to what he has done. And so I want you to see that this is not only a new concept in the teaching of Christ, it is something that he taught. I want you to see that this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. It's a common theme throughout the New Testament, that there is judgment for our works. Now, for your homework assignment, you can look up the first and second Corinthians and even the Revelation 22 passages that I listed for you. Now keep in mind that Paul is teaching there primarily about a judgment of believers and being rewarded for their good works, not so much about salvation, but the idea is there that there is a record of our works. Our works are being watched. That's kind of a scary concept in a way. 
Maybe it would help bring clarity if we jumped into the Apostle Paul's teaching. Okay, so we're talking about the fact that this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. And I was reminded um, this morning in the second service, Pastor Everett prayed the pastoral prayer. And he prayed part of a verse out of 2 Peter um, chapter 1, where he said, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, what's the next one? Knowledge. Knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control is in there somewhere. And I was thinking about that. That fits what we're talking about this morning. So we have faith. Peter's teaching there. Peter in the New Testament taught the same thing. You have salvation. You have faith. But now add to your faith virtue and knowledge, self-control. So be out of your faith. You're going to be adding these things and they will be seen. Those aren't the things that save you. Those are a result of fruit growing in your life because of your salvation. Okay, so Paul taught this as well. We're in Acts now. Go to Acts chapter 26, verse 20. This isn't in your notes either. You might jot it down and look at it again later. If you do, I like to think you do. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. And this is a wonderful passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul is on defense for his faith. And he's in front of King Agrippa. These are interesting characters. There's a guy in there named Felix the cat. And there's just some interesting people. And uh, they've, he's after him about you know, being immoral and coming judgment and self-control. And he's just after him, Paul is. And they're condemning him for preaching Christ and for living for Christ. If you haven't read this section of the last few chapters of the book of Acts, you ought to do that this week. You would enjoy it. Um, It really reads well. In the middle of this, the Apostle Paul is coming after King Agrippa with the gospel. And he's giving a defense for himself. He's representing himself in court, the Apostle Paul is. And he's acknowledging that what they want to prosecute him for is he's somewhat guilty. I have been preaching Christ. Indeed, I have. And so look at verse uh, chapter 26, beginning with verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Remember, that was his conversion on the road to Damascus. And he's saying, I was true to what God called me to be. And I didn't deny the vision. And, but I declared first to those in Damascus... And then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, here's what I declared to all those people, Agrippa. I'm telling you what I told them. This is what I told them. That they should repent and turn to God. That's a good message, right? Repent of your sin and turn to God. That's the only place you can find salvation. Look what he says. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Isn't that interesting that Paul adds that to his message? You see, the idea is, back to Matthew 16, the idea is that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, it shows. It shows. And so works, good works spilling over in the life of the believer is a demonstration of our salvation And our salvation, in turn, is a motivation for good works to even keep going. Because I am saved, I do good works. Not to be saved. 
I am saved only by the blood of Christ, by grace, through faith in Christ alone at the cross of Christ, where he died for my sin, and I accepted that free gift. But then, once that happened, the old is gone and the new has come. Listen, here's what I wrote. A Christian's life will naturally be characterized by good works. A Christian's life will naturally be characterized by good works. The fruit of the Spirit, we find those in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit will be seen in such a practical way that one's behavior will give, there's a typo here, that one's behavior will give proof of salvation. That one's behavior will give proof of salvation. The point is that righteous people will live righteously. Okay, so let's think about it like this. So there's a forensics team, a forensics team and some detectives that park their van out in front of your house. And they are, they are on to you. And they begin to listen in, tap in on phone calls. And they begin to use all that's in their detective power You leave, they pick your lock, they walk through your house, they look in your drawers, they look in your closet, they look at your program on your television, they look at your DVD file, they look at, they look everywhere, they can tap into your phone, they can see, they can see all of your contacts, and they are out forensically to prove that you are a Christian. Can they do it? Does it show? Have you been with Jesus? I think that's all he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that when he comes, it will just be evident by people's works that the righteous work is a spillover of a righteous heart that was obtained by grace through faith in Christ alone at the cross where the blood of Christ cleansed away all my sin. Maybe brand new. And then you say, but Pastor Van, what about my sin? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but let me review it again. Because even as a believer in Christ, I can sin, right? And I think, I think when we talked about this, I used my son, Jonathan. And he, he's doing great at Appalachian Bible College. And we have a great relationship. I don't mean to make it sound bad. It's an illustration. We say you have a, we have our lawn mowing business going. And Jonathan's out with the truck and the tractor and the weed wagon. He's out doing, doing lawns and pops his quality control, right? And I come through. And he's loading up the mower and he's heading out of the neighborhood. And I'm like, what are you doing? What do you mean, Dad? I'm done. And I say, you're not done. And he said, yes, I am. No, you're not done. You didn't, you didn't weed whack around the culverts. You didn't weed whack around the stop signs. You didn't get around those bricks and those blocks over there. And you blew grass out on the driveway and you never cleaned it up. And I told you never point the blower at the house. And, and then he gets mad at me and then I'm mad at him and away we go and we're butting heads. This has never happened, but it's an illustration. <laughs> and then you know what happens, right? Then words are spoken. Stop telling me what to do. I can't wait till I leave this house. Who do you think you are? You're not going to talk to me like that, boy. We're going to straighten you out, blah, blah, blah. And, then the, and, and there we go, right? Okay? Okay, so Jonathan Marceau never stops being Van Marceau's son, does he? You know, isn't it great when that evening and I hear the truck come in the driveway and it's dark and he parks and he's putting stuff away and then he comes in the house and he finds me and he says, Dad, I'm really sorry that I spoke to you the way I spoke. And I say, son, I'm sorry that I reacted the way I reacted. Would you please forgive me? 
Yes, Dad. Would you please forgive me? Yes. Okay, so he never stopped being my son. But relationship was strained, right? Relationship was broken. See, that's what happens when a believer sins. You know that feeling, don't you? Of the flesh taking over. Of saying things and doing things. How does it make you feel when you sin? Are you comfortable with that? One of the signs of salvation is the discomfort that you feel when you sin. Snapping at the one you love. Thinking thoughts that are uncalled for, that are off limits. Wishing evil of someone that you're supposed to esteem higher than yourself. And then do you know that moment where your little voice says, that's enough. And you bow your head and you say, Father, Father, please forgive me for what I did today. I've never stopped being his child that day, right? But relationship was broken. That's the difference when a believer sins and responds to that sin. I just want to be clear that we're not talking in any way that somehow my works will get me into heaven. They will not. But a born-again Christian who's been to the cross, who is a blood-bought one, who is redeemed and sanctified by the blood of Christ, by grace through faith... It cannot not show. It will show you. It will show the world. The forensics team will be able to identify you. Do you know that in some Middle Eastern um, Muslim-driven countries today, the, the indicator that they do on the homes of Christians is the, is the letter N. N. It stands for the Nazarene. You come home from work and you have an N sprayed on your house. The forensics team has been there. They've identified you as one who is the follower of the Nazarene. In some parts of the world today, that'll get you killed. Today, if the forensic team comes to your house, if the forensics team follows you around, will they be able to spray an N on the side of your garage? He's a follower of the Nazarene. I've looked at the evidence. I've looked at the works. I've held it all out here, and it is clear this is one who is in Christ. It cannot not show. You got it? Next week, we're going to see this incredible, convincing moment. I think that chapter 17 begins with one of the most bizarre moments in the life of Christ. As he demonstrates his glory in front of three of his disciples up on a high mountain somewhere. You'll have to come back next week to get that. Would you stand with me, please? Let's bow our heads. Let's just ask ourselves a couple quick questions in conclusion, okay? So, like Mr. Zettergren walking down the hall... And you know this feeling, you know, you know what it is to have company coming on short notice and you are scrambling to be ready. Are you ready for the Lord's return this week? Does the Lord's return and the fact that Christ would come and there would be a judgment of works in your life bring conviction to you? I wonder if some of us need to go throw stuff away. 
Again, it's not works, but it's a result of a grace that's going on in my life, a grace work that's going on in my life, convicting me of sin and convicting me of worldliness and fleshliness. Does the imminent return of Christ bring conviction to my life? It ought to. And how about the forensics team? Would they spray paint an end on anything you have? Father, we need your help. We thank you for the enabling power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the convicting words of your scriptures. And we thank you for the profound work of salvation that Christ did on our behalf and how we can come to the cross and by grace through faith be saved and transformed. Father, would you just now help us to walk in step with the Spirit and allow good works to spill over in our lives that that a whole bunch of Christian trees would bear Christian fruit. And that as we look at the forensic evidence of our lives, that we would be convicted if it's not there by testing uh, our own faith and salvation. Father, please bring clarity where I've been unclear. Please convict all of us to be the salt and light that we should be. Help us never to be embarrassed of Jesus, to never be ashamed to bear the mark of the Nazarene. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.